0: Welcome to those of you who are watching by live stream this morning. I hope you enjoy our service. This is March 21, and we're in Isaiah 53. I'm doing four messages from Isaiah 53 leading up to Easter, resurrection morning. Last week, we covered the first three verses about the Lord's human life and what uh, the, they knew about him while he grew up, how he grew up as a tender plant before the Lord, Today we're in verses 4 through 6 which speak of his suffering as the Jewish people look back and saw the suffering that he was going through. In verses 7 to 9 we'll talk about crucifixion and death and then in verses twelve or 10 to 12 on Easter morning about the grave and about resurrection from the grave. I want you to do two things with me also as we start and go to two passages in the New Testament. One is in Philippians chapter 2, and the other is in 1 Peter chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, we have this great kenosis passage, as it's called, Philippians 2, 5. And this tells us what Paul was thinking as he looked back on what Jesus did. He says to us, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and coming in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. That's what Isaiah is talking about. And when we look at 1 Peter chapter 2, and beginning in verse 25, or excuse me, uh, verse 21, it says, For this you were called, because Christ, notice the name, also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Which is a phrase that we will find today in Isaiah 53. It's interesting because in Isaiah 53, we're looking back with the Jewish people at what happened to Jesus. They're in the future, and they're looking back and using these past tenses saying he was bruised for our iniquities. He was chastised for our peace. We'll see that as we go along. Let me ask you this then about the Lord himself. I wonder as people think about him today and think about our Savior, some people think he was a great man, and yet a great man that died in weakness on a Roman cross. Some people say he was a great teacher, but all of his disciples deserted him when he died. Or maybe he was a great king, and yet he was rejected by his own people. So why would you make a person like that your Savior? I think sometimes today, as modern people, we look at ourselves and say, well, we're pretty great, (laughs) you know, we're still pretty strong, we're instructors of of other people, and uh, we're modern people, after all, you know, we know more than anybody who's ever known anything. Why do we need a Savior who died on a cross? Well, keep in mind that the message of Christianity is not that Jesus was our example, Now, he was. He was because he was sinless. He was because he was God in the flesh, but that's not the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity was that Jesus is our substitute, that he died in our place. He's an example, yes, because he's sinless, but that allowed him to die for us, and that's the message that we need. Remember Isaac Watts' words, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? And then another verse, Well might the sun and darkness hide and shut his glories in. When Christ, the mighty maker, died for man, the creature's sin. He died for us. And what a great thing that is. Remember Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 8 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. That's the message of Christianity, and that's what we're seeing in Isaiah 53. Now I want you to follow with me, if you will, as we look at these passages in in, uh, verse 4. Remember that we're looking at, uh, stanzas in a song, and this chapter has four of them divided into three verses each. As a matter of fact, if you go back up to chapter 52 in verse 13, 14, and 15, you'd have even a fifth stanza. But here we're looking at verse 4, 5, and 6, and notice that I call these three views, three ways that people looked at the crucifixion of Christ. And I think we can identify with all of them. In verse 4, this is what they observed. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Now, we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves here. We should understand what the Jewish people are saying. They're saying, first of all, in verse 4, surely this is what we saw. And then in verse five, but what we understand is he was wounded for our transgressions. So first we see from their point of view, the people who crucified him, what was going on in that early uh, time when he was taken uh, to be crucified. Notice first of all, I think that the first part of verse four is saying he was relieving our burdens. Notice your outline there. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows surely he did that remember back up in verse 3 when he was acquainted with grief we pointed out that he was acquainted with disease he was around all of the diseases he healed them as a matter of fact somebody said he was a confidant of diseases that's why in Matthew 8:17 our verses quoted Matthew 8:16 and 17 says this When the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick. Verse 17, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. In other words, they were looking at him, saying, He did all of this for us. He supplied all of our needs. The word born here, that he, born our, he has borne our sorrows means to take the burden off of someone else and put it on yourself. That's what he did. He took the burden from them and he put it on us. So remember that when Jesus walked among the people of Israel, he was a supplier of their need. He gave them what they needed. He, he was a healer of their diseases. He helped them wherever he could. He was a teacher. Do you remember the long chapter in John chapter 6? 71 verses, I think it is, in John chapter 6. But among those is where he he feeds the 5,000. They were over in Capernaum, and he heals people, and he heals the sick people. He's healed Peter's mother-in-law and all of those people. And then they're out in the desert, and they have nothing to eat. And so Jesus takes a few fish and some loaves of bread, and he feeds 5,000 people out of them. And that chapter says, then they took Jesus to force him to be their king. This man can heal our diseases when we're sick. He can feed us when we're hungry. He can do all of these things for us. Let's make him our king. But Jesus pulled himself away from them because he didn't want to be accepted that way. He needs to be accepted by faith. Now the word surely at the beginning of of this verse simply means surely he provided everything that we needed. He did all that we needed today. And you know, I think sometimes today people look at Jesus and they read the new Testament and they say, well, he was a good example. We ought to be like him. He was kind of a champion of the poor people. We ought to champion poor people. Also a healer of strife. We ought to do the same. And yes, you should, but that's not the message of salvation. You know, there's a thing today called liberation theology, which basically means that all Jesus is really concerned about is taking poor people and oppressed people, wherever they are, and giving them freedom. And once they get freedom in this life, that's the message of Christianity, the liberation that Jesus brings. It's not the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is, where will you go when you die? And is your sin covered by the substitute that God provided? Well, you know, when we go on in verse 4, you have the word yet, at the same time, we might say. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. The word esteemed, maybe we read it a little wrong. It's not necessarily admiration. It's more, we thought that this is who he was. We thought, we kind of, we figured, and then we saw God punish him. We saw that he was afflicted. And then we wondered within ourselves, was this really the one that we thought he was? Notice that when, he, when they say he was, he was afflicted by God, I think that they're thinking, well, wait a minute, maybe we were wrong about him. They're thinking back, of course, to the first century. Maybe we were wrong about him. Maybe he's not the person we thought he would be. Maybe he wouldn't be the king that we thought he would be. He's afflicted by God. He's stricken by God. As a matter of fact, I want you to think about these three words as they see what is happening to Jesus when they take him prisoner from the garden and they lead him to the high priest's house and then to Pilate's uh, judgment hall. And they see what's happening to him and they're stopping saying, he's afflicted by God. Wait a minute. Is this the person we thought he was? The word, the words stricken, smitten, and afflicted, three short words in the Hebrew words, short words that carry big meaning. Stricken means to strike and to cast upon. Smitten means to kill, to murder, to slay, to give stripes to. And the word afflicted means to browbeat and depress, to chasten and afflict. And now they're watching that happen to him, and they're thinking, he must be a prisoner too. Maybe he's a fraud. Maybe he at best is is a hypocrite. Let me read to you these similar verses in the Gospels. Matthew 27, for example, verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off and put on his own clothes, and led him out to be crucified. We skip to the Gospel of John, and we find in Pilate's judgment hall where this was taking place, Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Here, you Jewish people, here's the one you wanted to make king. Here's the one who calls himself king of the Jews. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. What does our verse say? We did a stream him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. You know, the preaching of the cross still is to them that perish foolishness, isn't it? That's what Paul said in, 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 uh, to the Corinthians. The Preaching of the cross is foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. But to the world, it's like that again. Who needs a crucified Savior? Who needs a bloody uh, sacrifice that ended on a Roman cross as a criminal? Why do I need that? And unless you see that as the substitute for what you deserve, you'll never come to Christ as your Savior also. Well, let's go on to the next verse. If that's the people's view, secondly, I call verse 5 the preacher's view. In other words, now they are preaching, but, contrast, but, now we see. Let me stop and, and remind you of what we're looking at here. This is the view from far into our future. This is the millennial view. This is when Jesus has returned to the earth and he's he's gathered his saved people around him. Jewish people who are born again have become believers in Jesus Christ. And now they look way back, look way back 2000 years to the cross. And they say he was wounded for our transgressions. We didn't know it. We didn't see it at the time. He was bruised for our iniquities. Now we see it. And with his stripes, now we are healed the Hebrew uh, scholars call it a prophetic perfect. That is, it's a prophecy way into our future about something that is way into our past. And they go all the way back even to Isaiah 700 years before Christ and say, he was right. This is what exactly happened to him. As a matter of fact, as you're, Just as an aside, look back up at chapter 52, verses 1 and 2, the chapter before this. It's, a, it's a, an announcement of the kingdom of God. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean shall no longer come to you. Shake yourself from the dust. Arise and sit down. That's a picture of resurrection, O Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. They're set free, you see. Well, look at chapter 54, verses 1 and 2. In other words, the chapter afterward. Sing, O barren, you who have not born. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not travailed with child. For more now are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let them stretch out the curtains of your habitations. In other words, all throughout this passage, all throughout these chapters, here is the kingdom of God when the Jews are saved and established in their lands, and now they're looking back and they're saying, now we understand what is going on. So when you see our verse 5, but now we understand he was wounded for our transgressions. Now we see it clearly. Now I want you to notice also in verse five, the contrast between him and us, the contrast between the words he and him on one side and the words we and our on the other side. Notice how always it's something that he did and something that we did. He was wounded, but it was our transgressions. He was bruised. It was our iniquity. Our peace was upon him for his chastisement. With his stripes we are healed. Back and forth, back and forth. This is called the great transaction. This is called that great trade that we made with the Lord himself. As a matter of fact, 2 Corinthians five twenty and 21. We are ambassadors for Christ. You and I are preachers of the gospel. As though God were pleading through us, be reconciled to God. Listen, for he made him who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's the great trade-off. It's a wonderful thing when you think about it. Now, an old writer, J.A. Alexander, said, if vicarious suffering, one person suffering for others, if vicarious suffering can be described at all in words, it is described in these two verses. That is 5 and 6. The vicarious suffering of Christ. So notice three things with me that, that our verse says. Number one, He was dying for our sin. In the first two phrases, He was wounded for our transgressions, He was bruised for our iniquities. Notice the He and then the Our. He was wounded, He was bruised. The word wounded means to bore into. Can you see that spear in his side boring into? He was wounded for our transgressions. And the word bruised means to break in pieces. As a matter of fact, this is the word that would describe the crushing of the grapes in the wine vats. The stomping down upon the grapes and crushing them down. That's the word translated here, bruised, crushed grapes. And why did that happen to him? For our transgressions, for our iniquities. You see the trade off here, don't you? And so, Romans 5 and 6 through 8 says, When we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man someone even dare to die. But God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He was delivered for our offenses, for our transgressions. And so we see that he was dying for our sin. Secondly, he was suffering for our peace. So one phrase then follows that the chastisement of our peace was upon him. Our peace put upon him. The word chastisement here might, we might think of the word accomplishment. In other words, he paid the price for our sin. The chastisement had to be upon him. There had to be a price paid for, for our peace. And you know what the New Testament says about our peace, Colossians 1.20, By him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. In himself is our peace. Let me tell, remind you something about the peace that Jesus bought for us. First of all, we need to have a peace with God, don't we? And this the New Testament speaks of often. We are enemies to God until we know Christ is our Savior. We're under the wrath of God and the judgment of God, and we need peace. And Jesus came to bring us peace with God. And once we have peace with God, then we can have the peace of God. And so that that battle that was in the soul that battle that was in the mind why am I here and where am I going and what will happen when I die that peace of God comes in because you have peace with God you know there's a third kind of peace and I would call it the peace by God and that is really what Isaiah again as I've said is picturing because there's going to come a time when Jesus will return and bring peace to the earth where that verse will be fulfilled on earth, peace, goodwill toward man. It really will happen, and it will be fulfilled when the peace by God comes to this earth. So he, he was dying for our sins. He, he was suffering for our peace. And thirdly, he was cut for our healing. By his stripes, we are healed. It sounds funny for me to say he was cut, but notice his stripes, our healing, But here is an interesting thing I found in studying this passage. I thought it was interesting, and that is that the word stripes in in that language is singular, not plural. By his stripe, by his cut. Interesting, I thought, that that's the way it is. In other words, the whole sacrifice of Jesus, all of the torture that he went under is described as one thing, the stripe, the cut the bruise that he suffered in our place. I think that maybe Colossians 1 describes it best. You who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. That body was our sacrifice. That body was our wound. That body that died is what gave us peace and what brought us healing through his cut, his stripe. But since we know he took stripes, since we know it took a lot to bruise that body, we translate it still in the plural, one large cut. So what do we have in verse 5 in the preacher's view? This is the great transaction. This is what we preach. He and us, what he did for us. We are the sinners. He is the righteous one. He came to do all of this for us, that great transaction. Or someone said, Jesus took upon himself alien guilt, the sinless one, he that knew no sin, as Paul said, he takes our guilt upon him and dies under the wrath of God in our place as our substitute, and then we get alien righteousness, because we have no righteousness to stand before God, but we get his righteousness. He takes our sin. We take his righteousness. What a a great transaction that is. There's an old song in our songbook that sometimes we sing at Easter by Thomas Chisholm called, He Was Wounded for Our Transgressions. Remember how these words go, He was wounded for our transgressions. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. For our guilt, he gave us peace. For our bondage gave release. And with his stripes, and with his stripes, and with his stripes, we are healed. We sing that sometimes because it's right from Isaiah 53 and verse 5. And what a great uh, song that is too. Well, we want to go one more verse, and we want to go to verse 6. And I call it the penitence view. That is what brings us finally to repentance, what brings us finally to the realization of who we are. You know, if I could go back to Pilate's judgment hall again, when, when they said, Uh, no crucify him then he said what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ what are you going to do with him and that's what I think verse 6 does what are you going to do with him what are you going to do with this one who substituted his life for you he gave himself for you and notice also in verse 6 what is the first word in the verse and what is the last word Did you notice that? All we like sheep have gone astray. And why did Jesus do this substitution? For all of us. For you as well as for me. A great thing when you think about it. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, right? There is none righteous. No, not one. No one can say, well, I don't need this. Yes, you do. And if you think that you don't, you need it more than ever. Well, notice three analogies then that were given in verse 6 about the fact of our sin, about the fact that we've all done this. First of all, we are straying sheep. All we like sheep have gone astray. We're just stinky, blind, old sheep. Someone said that sheep actually are nearsighted, that they can't see very well. And that, uh, you know, when they get lost, they really can't find their way back. They're prone to get lost, but they're not prone to be found. Uh, A shepherd has to find them. And if they wander without the shepherd, they really don't know where they're going. Remember these words in Matthew 9, when Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd no one to guide them, off by themselves, can't find their way home, and all we like sheep have gone astray. David wrote in Psalm 119, the very last verse, 176, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek thy servant, for I do not forget thy commandments. I've gone astray too, just like that. And so here they are, Peter said, blind, and they can't see afar off. (laughs) Uh, that's the way a sinner is without Christ. We are as sheep, straying sheep. Secondly, we are wayward ones. And then notice we have turned everyone to his own way. Notice the individuality here. Everyone, not just we as humanity, but you. You individually have gone astray. You have gone away from God remember proverbs fourteen twelve there is a way which seems right unto man, but the end thereof are the ways of death or romans three twelve they are all gone out of the way, they are together become unprofitable. there is none that doeth good, no not one and that's why we have this all and everyone in this verse uh, like that, and so you're not part as far as God's concerned you're not part of a group you're not even part of a race you're not part of a class but you are an individual you know these days we we are apt to say well I make my own choices I can decide this I don't want to believe this this is true for me maybe not for you this is the way I want to go as I've said before, I think the most repeated phrase in commercials these days when they want to sell you something is to say, well, you deserve this. How do you know that I deserve it? How do you know I deserve anything? All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone individually to our own way. But then we come to the last thought, and that is at the end of this verse, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Notice that I've titled it, we are savable sinners because God has done this for us, because our substitution has been made. Everyone's iniquity is placed on him. Now notice these words carefully. The Lord has laid on him I couldn't help but think because I just read through the book of Leviticus. Maybe you did in your Old Testament reading too. As you begin that book of Leviticus, you begin with the descriptions of the sacrifices. And especially you have the burnt offerings and the sin offerings. And here's the way verse chapter 1 verse 4 begins. Then shall you put your hands on the head of the burnt offering and kill it gets to the sin offering, then you put your hands on the head of the sin offering, you lay your hands on him, and then you kill it. Let me put it this way in a story fashion. I don't think this is so out of keeping. Suppose there's this Jewish family, a mom and a dad and some little kids, and they have sheep, and they have this little lamb that's born, and he's a beautiful little lamb, And he grows up in the house and the kids call it little lamb, call him little lamb. And the little lamb sleeps with the kids. The little lamb plays with the kids. The little lamb is just their pet, It's just a beautiful little lamb. But about the time that lamb is a year old, dad says, you know, it's time to go to Jerusalem again. It's a feast day. We're going to go and and celebrate. Okay. And he says, bring little lamb with us this time. The kids say, oh, great. We'll bring little lamb with us this time. And so they go to Jerusalem, and the feasts are going on and everything. And pretty soon dad says, the priest called, and it's our turn. Come on, we're going to go see the high priest. And bring little lamb with you. And they go, and they take little lamb, and they go, and as they enter in that, that uh, part of the temple, they can see the, the fire burning, and they can see the, uh, the kind of the blood and the ugliness that's going on. But come this way. And bring little lamb with you. And they come before the high priest and dad says, now kids watch what I do. And he takes his hands and he puts them on the head of that lamb. And then he says, now mom, you do the same. And she puts her hands on the head of little lamb. And then dad says, now children, you come and do the same thing. And what you're doing is you're putting your sins on little lamb. And each of the children come by and they put their hands on the little lamb. Then put their hands on the little lamb. And Dad says, Now, children watch. And the priest hands him that sharp knife. And he raises the face of that little lamb. And he slices its throat in front of those kids. And the lamb chokes and the blood runs out, and little lamb dies. And Dad says, That lamb was the substitute for your sins. You lay your sins upon that lamb and what did God do when Jesus went to the cross for us he laid all of our hands upon the head of our sacrifice for us there's more to this word the word laid and that is that that word is a violent word and it really means in that language to throw something down violently remember a few weeks ago when I preached about Lazarus and the rich man and Lazarus was the poor man who was laid at the gate of the rich man and it says it threw him down. That's kind of the, this is the Old Testament version of that word. As a matter of fact, Alexander also says laid upon him is too weak, whereas that conveyed by the Hebrew word is necessarily a violent one causing to strike or to fall down, like to knock down. And Hengstenberg, another ancient writer, says, the punishment is here represented as an assaulting enemy. God laid his wrath upon this lamb. God placed uh, our sin upon him, and then God's wrath came upon him. And what it's picturing, folks, is the wrath should be on you and me. The wrath should have been on each of us, and it will be unless we're covered by the blood of that lamb. The wrath of God was upon him for you instead of upon us. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, God's wrath. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. Cursed is everyone that hangs on the tree. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. Praise the Lord. God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, folks, I say this in these three verses. When you understand this, when you understand what Jesus did for you, you will repent and believe. But until you understand this, you will not. Until you see what God did for you, as long as you think you're okay, as long as you think somehow you can stand before God in your own goodness, you'll not believe. But when you see this, you will be the penitent one and saying, Oh, he died for me, and I need his salvation. So let me go ahead just three verses, and this will be the end, but all the way to verse 10, which we're going to read on Easter morning. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He was put to grief. Notice, when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. When you see that and say, that soul that died for me has to be the offering for my sin, then you'll come to the Lord as your Savior. And I trust that you know him, and I trust that you've done that. Now, I want you to stand with me, if you will. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and let's ask his blessing on the time that we sing and give our invitation. Father, what wonderful words we read here. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are your judgments and your ways past finding out. How do we know the depth of even what we read? But, Father, we know enough. We know what you did for us. And so, Father, our hearts cry out in thankfulness to you. I just pray that if there's someone hearing this voice that doesn't know Christ as savior, that doesn't realize what Jesus did for him or her, that they would reach out to you in trusting faith today. Father, bless us as we sing and bless us as we open our hearts to you. And Father, I pray that you would do your will and your way in each and every heart and life. We'll thank you for these things in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna sing, of course, And as we sing, our invitation is open. Even as we sing, I'm here at the front if you need to come. And when our service is closed, I'm still waiting. If you need to make things right with the Lord and you need my help, then you come as we sing. Gordon, come and lead us.